Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to hear from you. We are here tonight, whether by mere habit or with an eager expectation to hear from you, but we're here, and so we don't want to waste our time. We want to know what you think. We want to know what we should think. And so we pray that you would not allow us to leave the same person as we came tonight. Convict us, comfort us, meet us, speak to us. For no matter how many may be here on a Sunday evening, it is no less your word, no less inspired, and we are no less in need of hearing from you Sunday evening than we are on Sunday morning. And so we pray that you would speak a good word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14, making our way as we have been for quite some time through the book of Exodus, taking breaks here and there and rejoining the story as we did last week with the golden calf. We'll be here for a number of sermons before we come back to the section at the back of the book dealing with the construction of the tabernacle and we'll move through that rather quickly as it is a repeat of the instructions given for the construction and then we have the actual construction itself and Lord willing we will be moving through the remainder of Exodus this semester for this evening verses 7 through 14 of chapter 32 and the Lord said to Moses Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This passage is about many things, but right at the top of the list, this is a story about the power and the privilege of intercessory prayer, something that some of you are exceptionally good at. When you Shake my hand and tell me, I pray for you every day, Pastor. I pray for you on Wednesdays, or we pray for you every week. I, I know you mean it. We have many prayer warriors 
in this church. And we were thinking just a few weeks ago on Sunday morning about wrestling in prayer. Here we come to another text which will give us great motivation and methodology for praying for one another. The Israelites, you notice, are in big trouble. The Lord levels a six-fold indictment against them. Number one, they have corrupted themselves. Number two, they have turned aside quickly. You see that in verse eight from his commands. Number three, they have made for themselves a golden calf. Number four, they worship the golden calf. Number five, they sacrifice to the golden calf. And number six, they sit about the golden calf. These are your gods, O Israel. The Lord were a prosecuting attorney, he would be presenting his case with great aplomb, a six-fold indictment one after another, calling the people to account for their sins. And you'll notice, you've probably seen this before, what the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this stiff-necked people earlier. They have turned aside quickly. And he calls about them and says to Moses, these are your people. Verse 7, go down for your people. Now, sometimes this sounds almost humorous as if the Lord is just standing back and saying, now look, they're your people. Just like a, you know, a father or mother will say to one another, you go take care of your kids. What, didn't, didn't we do didn't, the together thing? Well, not right now. They're your kids. They're looking like your side of the family. But it's not just the Lord in a moment of agitation and irritation saying, they're your, I don't want anything to do with them. They're your people, Moses. No, he is speaking what is true. It's a powerful way of saying, Moses, have these people not rejected me? It's not God folding his arms and pouting. Saying, well, they're your people. No, they said the calf was their God. They looked to that statue for their deliverance. They worshiped it as a God. They sacrificed it as a savior. So clearly, they do not hold Yahweh to be their God. So God is giving a true statement. Oh, Moses, they, they are not looking upon me anymore as their God. These are your people now. It's not that God is fickle. The people are fickle. He was the one who heard their cries for help, raised up a deliverer, hardened Pharaoh's heart, sent the plagues, parted the Red Sea, drowned the Egyptians, gave them manna and quail, met them on Mount Sinai, gave them the law, appointed a tabernacle where his presence would dwell. And after all of this, like little children, the first sign of delay, they make an idol. All of us who are parents understand this. You barely have the wrapping paper put away from Christmas and already counting down the days to their birthday. When's the next special day where we get stuff from you? Children, that's every day you get stuff from us. Just like every day is a day that we get stuff from God. No, they have not just slipped up a little. They have rejected God outright. The Exodus, think about it, has been a kind of recreation. God claiming for himself, forming this new people. 
promising them a new land, giving to them a new law, and now this episode is a new fall in this new creation. See, the golden calf is what made sense to them. Strange to us, we don't have statues, but made perfect sense to them. This is how the Egyptians depicted gods. This is what they had seen for hundreds of years. These Israelites may have belonged to Yahweh, but they behaved like Egyptians. I mentioned last week is probably a representation of what they saw in the Egyptian god Apis, a sacred bull identified as the son of the goddess Hathor. Apis sometimes served as an intermediary between humans and other powerful deities. And so it's understandable that they would think, well, we'll make this golden calf. We don't know where Moses is. We can't see this God, but we can see this cow. The cult surrounding Apis was immensely popular in ancient Egypt. The bull symbolized strength and courage and fertility and the fighting spirit of the pharaohs. Later, Apis was considered a manifestation of the king himself. So you can see why they would be drawn to this golden calf, this bull. They couldn't see Yahweh. They couldn't see Moses. But they had likely seen representations of this Apis their entire lives. Never underestimate the ways that we're constantly shaped by just the world that we inhabit. For most of us, most of the time, it isn't that the devil comes or worldliness comes in a nice syllogistic fashion and says, now I'm going to convince you that the Bible's untrue and now I'm going to convince you that Jesus didn't exist and now therefore you should start behaving like worldly people. That's not how it works. Rather, it's simply the air we breathe, all of the ways in which righteousness looks strange and sin looks normal to us. No, it isn't to say that you can't watch movies. We do. Or you can't turn on the TV. We have a TV. Or you can't peruse the internet. We do it all the time. But you must be mindful, all of you, from 8 to 80 years old, mindful that that is constantly reorienting you to what is normal. That's how the sexual revolution happens. Not because there was one classic book or text that can convinced all of American society what they should think, but little by little, it looks normal, normal, normal. Just with the words we have on our, our, our earbuds or the pictures that we see on our screen or the conversation that we hear. And so this seemed perfectly normal. And God says to them, Keep in mind, his chosen people, a holy nation, treasured possession, his royal priesthood, and now he gives them a new name. You are, verse 9, a stiff-necked people. Some of you have, have had this, either with serious issues here and requiring surgery or simply sleeping on your pillow in the wrong way, and you get up and you have a stiff neck. When you have a stiff neck, it's hard to look in any other direction. You only can see one way. That's what he means. You can't see anything any other way. You have blinders on. You have a stiff neck. So when I call to you, you do not turn. It's a horrible and perfect description of the human predicament. It's the first of many times that this description will be used of God's people in the Old Testament. 
Stephen will use it in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 7. Used of animals that refuse to receive their master's yoke to, to guide them and direct them where they should go. They're stiff-necked. People who never learn, never listen. Here's a question to think about. When is the last time you changed your mind on something? Because unless you're God, you don't know everything. I don't know everything. And if you say, well, I haven't changed my mind on anything for years and years and years. Either you are much more sanctified than your spouse thinks, or perhaps not nearly as much as you think. These are people that never admit mistakes, never change, don't listen to counsel, have a perpetual stubbornness problem, but they think that everyone else has a problem. That's how it is with stiff-necked people. Listen, if every relationship you have is a very difficult relationship, now I can't know for certain, but just ponder for a second. If every relationship you have is difficult, think of the constant variable in all your relationships. You, you're there. Just something to think about. The more stiff-necked you are, the less likely you are to think you are stiff-necked at all. It's those of you who aren't really stiff-necked who think of it and say, oh boy, I better consider this. I, I, maybe I should ask a friend about this and Lord, would you help me with this? But it's those who are truly stiff-necked who think, what a marvelous sermon. Again, Kevin, you've done a great sermon for other people in my life to listen to. It's what Timothy, Paul says to Timothy in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. You know people like that? Oh, they know lots of things. Very quick, very smart, very well read, but never really arriving at a knowledge of the truth. The Israelites here have been recipients of immense blessing, deliverance, provision, law, covenant, ark, tabernacle, priests. And now they turn to the golden calf. And God quite justifiably is ready to unleash his anger and destroy the whole lot of them and start over with Moses. It said it was a, a new kind of fall. Well, it's also a new kind of flood that's about to happen, just like God did. Okay, Noah, we got one righteous family. I'm wiping everybody else out. I'm starting over with you. That's what God is going to do here, and he has every right to do so. But if you know the book of Exodus, you know that by the time we get to chapter 5, we're back to the tabernacle. And eventually, in chapter 40, to the glory of God inhabiting that tabernacle. So what happened to get things back on track? How did we go from here in chapter 32, you're all toast, to chapter 35, tabernacle, back on schedule? Well, what's the variable that alters this equation? Well, there are many, but it begins here. Moses intercedes. Now, there is good reason to think God wants and expects and invites Moses to intercede on behalf of his people. So, don't think that God is sort of bad cop and Moses is good cop. We have reason to think that Moses was enticing Moses to intercede. After all, God invites Moses to come down in verse 7 
Think about it. If the Lord just wanted in a moment's anger to wipe away the people, why tell Moses what he's going to do? This is not like some, some brainless villain who always has to monologue before he destroys everything and then you find out what the plan is and James Bond can figure it out. No, this is God precisely knowing what he's doing. Moses, I want you to come down and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. It's a rhetorical invitation to intercede. You see something similar in uh, Amos chapter 7, where God is, is telling the people, here's what I'm going to do to you. Here's the punishments that are coming. And he's inviting them. Do you want this to happen? Do you want this to come upon you? Might you intercede? Or it's the implicit promise when Jonah preaches that gospel without a gospel to Nineveh, 40 days, and you'll be overturned. But the invitation there is, might you intercede? Might you pray? Might you humble yourselves? Might you confess? And so Moses, I think, is being driven by God himself to intercede. Imagine you have a, a house full of boys, and you come home one night with your oldest son, and he's a very good son, and he wasn't out making this mess, and you come home, and there is quite a wild, raucous party going on, instigated by your other children in the house, and you can smell what's going on, and you can see the mess that's come about, and as you stand ready to enter in there, you turn to your son, your righteous son who has been with you, and you say, son, I want you to step aside. I'm going to go in there. And it's not going to be pretty. And I'm going to take away all of their savings. I'm going to take away all of their privilege, all of their college fund, all of their vehicles, all of their insurance, everything that I provided for them. And I am going to give it all to you. I'm going to give it all to you if you just let me go in there. Now, what might be happening in a situation like that? Might the son realize that though the dad is sincere, he is also issuing an invitation to the son. If you let me go in there, I'm going to do all that and all to you. Might he be inviting the son to say, Dad, might there be another way? Perhaps I could stand in the gap. The Lord inserts an implied condition. Moses, I am going to destroy them, but only if you let me. And Moses obliges. And he does, in fact, intercede. Notice why he interceded and then how he interceded. Why he interceded. Well, first, he was burdened for others. That's obvious. He cared for his fellow Israelites. He didn't want to see them destroyed. Moses has matured a lot, hasn't he? From saying, I can't do it. Uh, who shall I say sent me? Um, I need some signs. I need some miracles. What if they don't believe me? Why am I doing this thing? I don't even speak very well. And now he has come to accept his role as their deliverer, their mediator, their leader. He could have been a new nation unto himself. Verse 10, let me alone. If you just let me go in there, Moses, I'll consume them and I'll make you a great nation. I'll start over with you, Moses. He could have been a new kind of Abraham. It's the same covenant language. You're going to inherit this blessing. But he turns it down in order to plead for the lives of his countrymen. 
A big part of interceding for others is learning to care about people. It's a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. I know in my life, the times I've been faithful to intercede for others is because I feel something of their burden. If you never feel the burdens that your friends or your family members bear, you won't ever pray for them. You'll keep them at arm's length and press them away. But when we allow ourselves to feel something of their burden, we pray. Who do we pray for most often? Probably if you have kids, it's the, the, the people that you don't need to put on your list because you know them, you love them, you feel burdened by them. But for most people in most relationships, we need to feel that burden. We need to put them down on some sort of list. I don't know about you, but I'm not good enough at prayer to just spiritually, spontaneously combust into intercession for people. I need to write it down. I need to make a note of it. I need to pray for people right on the spot. Moses interceded because he was burdened for them. And second, notice why he interceded, because he believed that prayer could change things. Not change God, but change things. Like Abraham in Genesis 18, Moses believed God may in fact relent of the disaster that he threatened to bring to them. That's why he says in verse 11, why does your wrath burn hot whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? Why should they say, the Egyptians, that you killed them with evil intent? He's pleading with them because he believes in prayer. Now you ask, how does prayer change things when God is sovereign? We'll see in Exodus 33, in fact, one of the absolute statements of God's absolute sovereignty that he is free to do whatever he pleases. But we must keep in mind that there is a way that God can change his mind without changing his mind. Well, where do I get that in the Bible? Well, I get it from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, talking about Saul as king, we have in verse 11 and in verse 29, in the same chapter, a statement that God relents and changes his mind and a statement that God never relents and he's not a man, so he never changes his mind. And so operating on the robust hermeneutical principle that the authors of Scripture are not stupid, we can determine that there must be some way in which God changes his mind in some way he never changes his mind. And the simplest answer is to say, as we experience it, as we see it, as God is described to us at times in human language, it appears as if there is a change because, in fact, one thing was seeming to happen and another thing does happen. And yet, ultimately, God as God is not like a man that he should change his mind. God has ordered things so that certain events will take place only if people pray. And in other situations, God reserves the right to respond to prayer as he sees fit. Let me take you to a passage in Jeremiah. If you haven't seen this before, this is a good one. If you're taking notes, write this down because it's, it's one of those passages to just sort of to lodge into your theological understanding of God and of the Old Testament in particular. Because in Jeremiah 18, verse 7, we have stated a principle explicitly that is implicitly operating throughout the entire Bible. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. 
Here's the Lord. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pick up, pluck up, and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. There is the Lord stating his own operating principle. Now, God is not fickle. God does not change his mind, but he makes explicit what we see in Nineveh implicitly, what we see at Mount Sinai with the golden calf implicitly, which we see all throughout the Old Testament, that God announces destruction and there is always an implicit promise. But if you turn, if you pray, if you humble yourself, and at the same time, when God gives them confidence, I will build you up, there is always that implicit warning just like we saw even with Jesus this morning. If you abide in my word and my word abides in you, if you continue steadfast. So Jeremiah 18 gives us the principle. It helps us to understand the power of prayer. God has already determined of his own sovereign will that he will respond with mercy when we intercede. Psalm 106 23, therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Trusting in God's sovereignty, we believe that he can do whatever we ask of him. And so we pray not in spite of providence, but because of it. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life has many helpful things to say. And in it, Paul Miller talks about two errors in presenting our petitions to God. One is not asking, and one is asking selfishly. So the first error is to think God does nothing, and the second error is to think God must always do my will. Those are the two fundamental errors in prayer. Either not coming in the first place because God won't do anything, or asking selfishly. The answer, Miller says, is to ask boldly and surrender completely. When you pray, ask boldly, surrender completely. Which, which side of that ditch are you likely to fall into? Is it not surrendering completely to God and his will? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yours be done, Jesus prayed even his beloved son, to submit his will to the Father in that earthly sense. But I do expect that for most of us, Presbyterians, Reformed folks, God's sovereignty, yes, our error may be the, the first one, not praying in the first place, not praying boldly, Perhaps shortcutting and say, well, God's sovereign and he does what he wants and not my will, but yours be done. And never coming to him with that sort of, I will not let you go until you bless me. You see Jesus doing both of those things, asking boldly, remove this cup from me, and yet surrendering completely, yet not what I will, but what you will. Ask. Many of us can't imagine that prayer might actually work because God actually works. 
Situations seem hopeless. Change seems impossible. And so we don't pray. And sometimes we're just, aren't we just guarding ourselves? You know, like rooting for your, your sports team that always loses, always finds a way to turn it over and always finds a way to fumble away and you just sort of protect yourself. That's what true fans do. We're going to lose. I'm like that. You know, down in the first quarter, turn it off. We're going to lose this. Just, it's, it's self-protection. Are you living a life of self-protection with God? I'm not going to ask. It's not going to work. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to listen. Nothing's going to change. And so we don't pray. Jesus' most frequent teaching on prayer. Do you know what it is? The most frequent thing he teaches when it comes to prayer. It's very simple. Ask. Ask. That's the most frequent command that Jesus gives us relative to prayer. Would you come to me? Would you ask? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. So Moses intercedes. Now notice how he intercedes. Verse 11, he intercedes based on God's adoption. Based on God's adoption. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt? Although we can safely assume he was motivated by love for his fellow Israelites, when it comes to petitioning God, notice Moses doesn't talk about how much better it will be and the Israelites, we don't want them to feel bad. His prayer is not based ultimately on what he thinks would be nice for Israel. His prayer is based on weightier matters. So he appeals not just to, I don't want them to feel bad. He appeals based on their identity as God's people. The Lord said in verse 7, your people, and now verse 11, Moses says, your people. (laughs) They may be rebellious idolaters. They may have rejected you. They may be grumbling malcontents. They're your people. Brought them out of Egypt, saved them, chose them, delivered them. When you pray for other people, do you pray based ultimately on your love for them or God's love? Particularly now, thinking of praying for those who do belong to God. It's easy to pray how much I love this person, how much I want them to not be suffering, how much I want. But do you pray, oh Lord, this is your adopted son or daughter. You love him more than I do. Have mercy, oh Lord. Moses intercedes based on God's adoption. That is their identity. And then notice verse 12, he intercedes based on God's honor. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent you brought them out to kill them? Turn from your anger. Relent from this disaster. The Egyptians are going to say, oh, look at this is their sort of God. He does all of this fancy shock and awe to get them out of Egypt, and then he just torches them when they get to the mountains. I imagine that 80 to 90% of our prayers of intercession are for health concerns. Nothing wrong with that at all, to pray for health concerns. God wants us to bring all of our cares to him. James 5 tells us to pray for the sick. But is it possible that so often when we are praying for health issues, we give little thought to how God figures into the equation? You don't need the Spirit of God to want sick people to get healthy. Almost everyone on the planet wants sick people that they love to get better. 
So it's good to think, how is this prayer for the sick person in my life, how is this a Christian prayer? It takes no work of the Spirit. No, you don't need to pray in Jesus' name for somebody. Everyone wants sick people to feel better. So where is God in this prayer? Not just in the doing of the request, but in the motivation for the request. Well, here's at least part of the answer. Moses says, oh, Lord, for your honor, save your wayward child. Perhaps this is how you pray for wayward children in your own life. Those who at some point seem to have made a profession of faith, seem to belong to Christ or now claim Christ but aren't living like it. Pray based on God's honor. Lord, for the sake of your name, this one goes by your name as a Christian. Forgive, preserve their marriage, save his life, that your name, O oh Lord, would be praised, your power and your mercy would be known in all the earth. He prays based on God's honor. One of the phrases that I heard years ago and often enters into my prayers is, would you make this one a trophy of your grace? put them on the shelf. They're all they've been through, all the sins, all the mistakes they've made. Now put that one up as a trophy of your grace. Not for them ultimately or for me, but Lord, that, that the world may come and say, look what God did there. And then he intercedes based on God's covenant. You see verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, he's saying, remember your promise. Remember the patriarchs. Remember the promised land. You swore by yourself. Nothing higher to swear by. The Lord remembered is one of the most beloved and powerful phrases in all the Bible. In fact, you could say that the story of the Christian is understanding what God forgets and what he remembers. Now, ultimately, he knows everything, and it isn't that something escapes his actual cognition, but in a covenantal sense, he forgets our sins. He remembers his covenant. And so Moses appeals with that precious word, remember you swore, you said, I will multiply your offspring I will do this. Remember, Lord, you promised, you said. Moses was not asking God to do something he could not do or did not want to do. He was pleading based on who God was and what he had already done. That's how you intercede for people. Prayer is not about learning how to get God to give us things we want. Prayer is about learning to ask God for the things that he already wants to give us. And so notice just in closing that something happens here for the first time in the scriptures, but praise God, not for the last time. Think of the other example before this one in the Bible of, a, of someone interceding for a sinful people. Can you think of it? Abraham interceding there for Sodom and Gomorrah, pleading with God for 50 righteous people. Would you, would you destroy this for 50? No, I'd save it for 50. 45, oh, for, for, forgive me, Lord, for 45, would you save it? Yes, for 45, I would. 
talks them all the way down to 10. For 10 righteous people, you wouldn't destroy the whole city. If there were 10, and the Lord says, no, for 10 righteous people, I will spare it. But of course, there weren't even 10 righteous people there. Lot and his family were delivered and the rest were destroyed. So contrast that. Abraham pleading for the righteous. And now we have Moses pleading for the guilty. It's not that Abraham's prayer was wrong, but there he's saying, will you, will you have mercy because there may be righteous people here? Moses realizes no such luck this time. There's, there, there ain't ten righteous people down there. No, no, no. He intercedes on behalf of the wicked, not the righteous. The intercession, therefore, is entirely based on God's character, not on their merits or even on the merits of a small remnant, but only upon His mercy. And so he pleads based on what God had done and who God was. Moses, in this moment, through his intercession, turned away God's wrath and saved the day. Jesus Christ, in a much more ultimate sense, turned away God's wrath and saves us to the uttermost. Moses made faithful intercession for the people, just as you and I can do in prayer. But Christ is the only true mediator between God and man who now lives forever to make intercession and lay a hand on us both. And so do you see this double blessing? On the one hand, when you pray for one another, you are doing such a Christ-like thing to be a go-between, to pray based on God's character and His mercy and His tender loving, covenantal affection. And so we pray, and at the same time, the other blessing is to realize just how much it depends upon Christ and not upon us. For ultimately, the only reason that God would listen to any of us in prayer is for the sake of Christ. We don't enter into that throne room claiming our blood or our blessings, claiming the righteousness of another for the sake of the unrighteous. And so for that reason, brothers and sisters, pray boldly, surrender completely, and ask, ask, and see what God may do to surprise us. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for your forgiveness knowing that many times we have been too, too lazy, too fearful, too busy, maybe too cautious to dare pray. Lord, I, I think we have enough of a theological grid in place to understand that all the sick people don't get better. All the lost people don't get saved. All the things that would seem good to us are for reasons often inscrutable, not your perfect will. But, oh Lord, let this not be an excuse for our prayerlessness. May we be a church filled with love, and may we express that love chiefly through the ministry of intercession. 
believing that you hear us for Jesus' sake, that you can do more than all we can ask or imagine. And if indeed for Moses' prayer and your own name's sake, you would stay your hand against the Israelites, then surely you will listen to our prayers and you will give us an answer that may surprise us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.